So hello and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads episode 5 on Compassion. Uh, I am, I guess I could call myself host Dharma Kirti, um, here with some guys if you want to introduce yourselves. Guys. Hello again, this is Aura. Storm King here. And this is Kaguya. And yeah, we decided it was sort of um, mutual or... Um, I mean, it was a. It was always in the background of the um, of the discussion, uh, particularly I think in the first episode when we were talking about Uiratu, and how he um, he is getting attacked as somehow unBuddhist or that he's a figure of hate, right? Um, because as we all know, nothing could be farther from Buddhism than. Well, I, I would say it's true that nothing could be farther than hate, but. It's the, it's the, how to say, the, the, the idea that trying to defend your country, um, trying to defend your people, uh, constitutes hate, right? That, that you're being attacked by Muslims and you're being invaded and all these bad things are happening and to fight back or to do anything proactive is quote unquote hate. And we see this, of course, in the West as well. Um, it's just that I think Westerners often fetishize Buddhism in a certain way, and so when they see that kind, when they when and, and so they and they're very used. I mean, the shitlibs and and the the all these other people are are very used to sort of casting Christianity in this kind of a bad light, but they in their minds they think Buddhism is somehow quote unquote better or whatever because it's just peaceful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's um, I think it's shocking to them when they see this uh you know this monk fighting back and but this gets into this whole issue of you know what does it mean to have compassion from a buddhist perspective what does it mean to be um compassionate and is you know how and, and yeah so i just wanted to start the the conversation there um wh what do you all uh what i'm curious what your thoughts are well i'll i'll just jump in and say um <clears throat> To set the table for people, um, for non-Buddhists out there, compassion is considered one of the central um, characteristics that people are meant to cultivate as practitioners. Um, is there's something called the four Brahma Viharas or Brahma Viharas, and um, it's actually a pre-Buddhist concept that was adapted by Buddhists and became very central to the teachings of the Buddha. And the four Brahma Viharas are four attitudes that. Um, a Buddhist is, like I said, is supposed to cultivate, and they are what's called loving-kindness, um, compassion, uh, empathetic joy, and equanimity. And those are just sort of four different ways to be, I guess, good and peaceful and loving in the universe. Um, loving-kindness is just actively wanting good things for other people, for other beings. Yeah, typically I mean, compassion, the, wanting them to be, to have happiness in the causes of happiness and then yeah compassion yes. is compassion is wanting them to be free of suffering and the causes of suffering sorry to, i know you're i'm like uh buddha cucking you a little bit there but i, I just want no 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 to give you the the that's it's the like that's academic a, definition sorry that's right and it's 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 uh really important actually that you said that because that that second part of those phrases is very important um Third is uh, empathetic joy, which is uh, wanting people to um, or being rejoicing in the happiness of other people. Yeah. And equanimity, which is, you know, sort of uh, just being at peace with the things that, that you can't change. It's typically associated. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's also, I think, typically associated with the emptiness piece that we talked about a little last week. I'm sure we'll get, you know, there'll be more conversations. Yeah. About emptiness, but it's, yeah, it's sort of. Yeah, seen, that's right. 
seeing everything as empty as one taste is is kind of part of the the thing with the equanimity bit for sure. yeah that's right so so these are indeed very you know very central to buddhism um and i'm I, I'm not aware of any tradition that doesn't talk about them at least a little bit, um, whether it's uh, Theravada or, or Mahayana or Vajrayana. Um, so they are very central, and um, many practices, many practitioners, myself included, start every, well, not every session, unfortunately. But I, int- I, 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 I'm supposed to start every session with, um, you know, spreading uh, goodwill in all directions and contemplating the Brahma Viharas um, before getting into my breath practice. So... So when people uh, try to, you know, put pin compassion as a Buddhist um, value, they're not wrong in that sense. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll cede the floor here now by just reiterating what uh, you just said, DK, which is compassion as wanting uh, the, for others to uh, cease having suffering and the causes of suffering, the causes of suffering. Yeah, just an important early note. Um, would be that it's not just like warm fuzzy feelings towards people um it's more complex than that like uh, it's not compassionate to let someone destroy themselves because you don't want to hurt their feelings um it's not compassionate or it's not you're not being full of loving kindness when you let someone destroy you um so you don't hurt their feelings or physically hurt them it's it's more complex than that it's not uh this sort of like um unconditional uh peacefulness and lack of concern for yourself and your family and stuff like that that's often kind of framed like that by people who don't understand it so i guess real early on let's just go ahead and say it's not that like i've used the example before you know if you meet a bandit on the road uh, and he's intent on trying to kill you it is compassionate to defend yourself and to even take his life but you should do so compassionately well, there's a there's a very famous uh, story in the Indian and Tibetan tradition. I, I presume you have similar stories and or koans in Zen, but um, and I think Kagyu, you've also you also brought this up one time of, of Captain Captain yes. Compassion is uh, was the the captain of a I mean his name in the story is Captain Compassion, and he was the captain of a boat. Um, it may even be a Mahayana Sutra. I don't remember exactly, but anyway, he. Um, there was a basically it was a boat going somewhere and there were a uh, number of people on the boat and uh, I guess there's different versions but basically there was a guy who had his plan to sink the boat and escape with everybody's stuff it was like jewels or something we're going to a jewel islanders I don't know and there was a bodhisattva on board who clairvoyantly because he was a bodhisattva discerned this intention and realized that he um, he was going to do this. So what he did instead was he killed the guy. And but it was it's interesting. I mean, there's, there's a kind of like a glimpse into the Buddhist ethical framework because the the idea is you know he did it with tears in his eyes and he was really sorry and he was really and it, and it wasn't a purely utilitarian thing of like one life for five hundred lives either. It was it was more sophisticated than that in that it was. Um, it was more like this this there's all this suffering and this all the, it, it it's i mean i guess you could at a certain point quantify it but it, it wasn't about the like the number of lives it was it was more you know by by doing this thing that that uh, is bad and he fully recognized i mean that was part of why it was bodhisattva intention is cuz he knows you know killing is bad it goes against my vows 
I'm going to suffer the negative consequences of it, um, which included, I mean, I think in some versions of the story, at least the words I heard, he, he, he does have to go to hell for like a second, like, but then he bounces off the bottom of hell and, and after he's reborn and, and goes to the Pure Lands or whatever. Um, but he does have to, I mean, he, he says, like, you know, this is bad. I'm going to suffer negative consequences, but the positive consequences outweigh those because the, you know, I'm preventing this horrible, terrible tragedy by doing this one thing that's bad, but not as bad as what would happen if I didn't. No, that's, uh, and that, that actually is kind of an interesting point because it's like whenever you are finding someone who is doing something negative karma, uh, that does gen- generate negative karma, that you have to be aware of the fact that they are going to eventually reap the fruit of that. And so by, by, t- by killing him, he was actually preventing that person from being reborn in one of the hell realms for... And, yeah, and, I mean, I mean, between spending a long, long well. time in hell, right? Exactly. He's he's actually act. That's again, yes. Thank you for hitting that. It's it's an important part of the bodhisattva conduct aspect of this that he was not just helping and saving the people that were going to be victims, but the perpetrator as well. That's that's an extremely important part of the analysis. Because in, I mean, in Buddhism, there is a certain sense that you should come should cultivate compassion even towards people who do wrong things to you but not in the sense of just like developing like attachment to them in the way shit libs tend to do with like any kind of criminals or people like that but in the sense that you have to be aware these people are generating negative karma for themselves which they will eventually have to deal with at some point in the future you can come at it from the angle of seeing something um, bad and, and, and recognizing that it's going to uh, cause negative karma or that it is negative karma and then you can come at it the opposite way which is um, uh, actually let me put some thought into that actually somebody else talk I, I'm not sure I want to say that um, well you know sometimes I think about how there are people um, that bear me and and the groups I belong to huge huge groups of people that uh, bear Ill, Ill, will, Ill will towards me and even like a murderous intent and, um, you know, I take that seriously, but also I understand that those type of things come from a place that has a total lack of equanimity and, and has a total lack of understanding about the situation they're in as beings. And so it's, it's not hard for me to know there may be situations where I have to do something drastic to defend myself and also have compassion toward these people because they would not have um, all that negativity and ill will uh, if they had right understanding, if they had had some glimpse of enlightenment or something like that, you know, if they had any sort of experience with any of this, and they don't, and it's it's really unfortunate to have not encountered the Dharma or have to have encountered it and not taken it seriously and not taken an interest. In. So it's easy for me to to be compassionate towards those people too, while knowing, you know, you might have to defend yourself. To go back to the yeah, to the I, example I always, I mean, I you know, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but I always make sure to include specifically blacks and Jews in my dedication of merit. I'm like, I, you know, this is, um, and I, and I think, you know, like, well, this situation in Africa in particular, like, I mean, these people are desperate and it's not, it's not that they, that means that I want them in Europe. It's not that it means that, you know, we have to bankrupt ourselves and destroy our civilization to, I don't even know what the like, goal of that would be and i mean that's part of the problem here is is um something else i wanted to say which is that 
you know, in at least in 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 the tradition that I'm, um, you know, in, compassion and wisdom are understood as as um, essentially two wings of the same bird. And I, you know, I mean, there's Absolutely. a kind of yeah, and and there's a kind of like a teach a man to fish aspect to that, but which you can get back to in a minute. But I I just wanted to say like, you know, so so being compassionate to Africans, right, and to Jews or whoever, it doesn't mean letting them destroy your society. It doesn't mean letting them rape your women. It doesn't it doesn't mean any of that, because that wouldn't be very wise. <laughs> and 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 this kind of uh, total lack of. Um, of wisdom, I think, is a huge problem in the kind of just this maudlin, sentimental, totally disconnected from reality kind of left-wing way of looking at things. That said, um, I think that there's a there's a problem that sometimes that people on our side, at least in our, I mean, I would consider myself part of the, you know, whatever you want to call it, dissident right or whatever. Um, people fall into this trap of of zero sum thinking and of just sort of considering enemies as enemies, full stop. And I, I just that to me that doesn't actually um, that doesn't actually help that doesn't help you that doesn't help the people that are in that trap really, and so to me yeah. it's like I always ser- it always serves as a check on on my motivation and on my you know uh, spiritual state essentially if you want to put it in those terms to be like no I you know make sure I make a point of saying like well these people that I perceive as threats that are threats. I mean, I'm not going to say that it's just a matter of perception. Like, I think there are issues here um, that need to be addressed, but it's not, I'm not addressing them by just sort of, you know, trying to act out in a, in a negative way. I'm, I'm um, really deeply considering like, okay, how do I, how do I help everybody really fundamentally? I think it's important to be aware of their suffering while also being aware of the fact that some of these half, these, these attempts to try and relieve their suffering by, people on the political left are actually going to generate more suffering in their attempt to do that. So, I mean, like, so for instance, letting in a million Sierra Leoneans in some crazy attempt to try and relieve their suffering is going to bring a lot of negative consequences into whatever society you bring them into. Well, even just feeding them in Sierra Leone, I mean, put, you know, it, it's like, uh, it's like an ant colony that you just keep providing with sugar and they just keep exploding well beyond their ability to like, if you didn't keep providing them with the sugar that they wouldn't um, be able to sustain themselves, you know, like, is that, well, you know, at at a certain point you either, I mean, at a certain point you stop being able to provide the sugar because you run out of sugar or, or whatever, but it doesn't matter. I mean, the point is like the colony is going to collapse one way or the other. And all you've done is create a lot more, create the conditions for a lot more suffering than would have otherwise existed. Yeah, I mean, like, you look at, like, a population projection of the country of Niger, which at the start of the 20th century had, like, less than 3 million people, and it's going to have 110 million by 2100. It's a scrubland that is rapidly desertifying. That's a very optimistic projection indeed. So, no, I mean, by feeding these people or by encouraging them just to 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 have four wives and have 14 children each it's 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 a remarkably uncompassionate thing in the long run i, I want to hear more, I mean, more yeah go 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 yeah well i mean if you actually wanted to do something compassionate um i think it would look a little bit like something you might call benevolent colonialism or not even colonialism you'd have to actually go and control 
uh, their behavior directly until they learn the lessons they need to learn so that you don't need to be there doing it. Oh, that, like, I don't know yeah. if you guys have seen Empire Empire of Dust yeah. is a movie that sort of illustrates a lot of problems with this. Um, you know, you can go and do that, but you have you can't leave too soon because you know a lot of times once the colonialism is over, everything reverts right back to where it was before, and this, it may be that yeah. the natural state of these people in these lands uh, just is a certain way, and there's not much you can do from the outside to help. It just has to go through its natural course uh, until the situation gets better. Well, I think it could, but it would take a very long time. Like, I mean, yeah. if you look at like medieval Europe, in a lot of ways, the murder rates and some of the other uh, some of the other social metrics are pretty similar to where sub-Saharan Africa is today. And so if you had hundreds and hundreds of years of that kind of rule that Probably you more had like for, thousands, but yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it depends on how aggressive. Well, I mean, you medieval Europe to. was different technologically. I don't want to get too deep into HBD at this moment. I just anyway, d- yep. sorry, I'm not this that's a bullshit. I thing. just I, I guess what came to mind is like the homicide rate of a place like Kinshasa of like a hundred and yeah, yeah, hundred thousand yeah. is sort of similar to what like Oxford was in, in like eleven hundred. But, but yeah, the I, the point is like uh, the point is I, I I think we're we're making is you know it it's not um, I mean to me this is all ultimately a question of what uh, I forget who it was if it was anyway it doesn't matter that, that compassion just means letting people do whatever they want to do you know like that's not that's not compassionate and it doesn't help people no. to just facilitate them to just engage in whatever they feel like doing um, at the at the moment i mean it just doesn't you know and let it people's ba- i mean that's the whole I, I at a certain level i've been thinking a lot about um you know what is it how would i define left first right and, and at a certain level it's it's kind of um unfair because i i, I really think you know I, at a certain level i'm defining leftism as evil <laughs> but 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 i really do think it's true like the the left-wing mindset is is satanic in the sense that it places ultimate importance on the individual, on the individual will, and anything that gets in the way of you maximizing your individual will, according to the left, is like, you know, bad and wrong and repressive and blah, 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 blah. This is where their fetishization of democracy comes from, because democracy is an expression of the will, so to speak. I mean, that's the idea, anyway, of the individual people and so you know this is why everyone gets a vote you know we should have 16 year olds voting we should have 10 year olds voting you know we i, I don't know if uh, uh, uh who like uh, people in the womb should be able well, that's i guess raises some difficult questions for them but but you get the ideas is it's all about you know me 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 all the time um where the reality is and, and this is something that i think pretty much every religion including i think islam i i, I couldn't say really about Judaism, but uh, certainly Buddhism and Christianity, and to my knowledge, Islam, you know, start from a place of recognizing actually, you know, our our wills are defective, our wills are bad, our, we need to have them be formed. You know, some people more than others, but uh, you know, when it comes to a place like Africa, when you're talking about, you know, it's just kind of things are running rampant, and and it's just no. Um, it's just it's just a it's just a shit show it's not compassionate to just give them the tools to 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 breed themselves into a into a a really nasty situation which is what's happening now i mean in some ways i think it's already baked in the cake that that you know actually you want to take away those tools actually you want to you know you it requires a kind of a strong hand I, i guess there's some in the chat i'm noticing there's some um 
issues with this term of benevolent colonialism. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I to me, I don't think colonialism really, I, I guess at a certain point, I, don't, I just don't care. But it's not about like... Yeah, I mean, maybe that's not, maybe I shouldn't have framed it that way, but you get what I'm saying, right? It's mostly, I'm essentially saying like, the situation requires tough love. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, maybe, and maybe tough maybe love I means just far. going away, you know? Or maybe tough love means being yeah. there in a certain way. I, I mean, there's no, I don't know that there's a way to like answer that question in advance because it's going to be different from situation to situation maybe you know maybe it makes the most sense to not be anywhere other than i don't know sierra leone or, or maybe it you know it, i mean it just depends it, it, the whole this is all theoretical we're not talking about like africa specifically we're talking about what does it mean to be compassionate and and that's what i was getting at is is to me what it means to be compassionate like or was saying it means to be aimed at I don't, I see this being, this being suffering. I don't want this being, I want this being to be relieved of their suffering, but I also want this being to relieve, to be relieved of any future suffering. I want them to, in fact, to attain Buddhahood. I want them to be completely, to completely transcend beyond suffering altogether, you know, completely uproot the, the causes and conditions for there to be any suffering in their continuum ever again. Um, you know, sometimes that means, you know, to that end, providing them with a fish. Sometimes it means to that end, uh, uh, you know, teaching them how to fish. Sometimes it means ignoring them because it doesn't like neither teaching them how to fish nor giving them a fish is actually going to help them in that moment. You know, it, that's why you have to have the wisdom to be able to discern these things. Yeah, I mean, think about if you had a family member or a friend that was addicted to, I don't know, let's say they're wildly addicted to uh, uh, opiates, right? Because that's common. So your choices are you can give them money habitually so that they don't go into uh, withdrawals which withdrawals suck um, and and they're very unpleasant and you know so that is on the face level that's nice you know you're keeping them from feeling pain uh, what's better than that well you could force them to go into rehab which I mean that's decent too that is sort of an attempt to teach them to get rid of the habitual cause of their suffering where they don't take this thing they're addicted to anymore uh, you could lock them in the basement chained up force them to go through withdrawals while you make sure they don't die. Uh, that's also compassionate. Or if they won't listen to you, you can do nothing. So it's really, it's really, there's a lot of context that matters in terms of thinking about, okay, what's, what's the real compassion here? But overall, the attitude I think is that the better your compassion, your compassionate acts are like the, the higher quality they are, the more they're aimed at getting rid of the cause of suffering. You know, and when you can't, when you, so there's situations where you can't get rid of the cause of suffering, like a relative is dying of cancer, there's nothing we can do about it, then you might want to focus on just making them comfortable, right? Yeah, what I was going to say earlier is that if you, if you, if there's an enemy, um, somebody who's, who's causing you pain and suffering, you and your loved ones, and they're doing it deliberately, um, and unfortunately, there are large swaths of these people out there, um, like you were talking about earlier, Storm King. <clears throat> and I do perceive them, and I do consider them enemies. If if such a situation exists, you we as we were talking about earlier, you can wish them, you can have compassion for them, and wish them to stop uh, creating bad karma for themselves. And that's a way of sort of loving your enemy, to use the the Christian formulation. And it has the the added benefit. What I was cut myself off earlier from saying is the added benefit is you're also 
wishing for your own happiness by doing that because like I wish my enemies would stop creating bad karma and if they because if they actually did that simultaneously would improve my situation and the situation of the people that I love and care about and that are that are very close to me and one of the things that uh, is encouraged um, in many traditions certainly in mine is that actually when you when you set about spreading um, goodwill in all directions and in, in the six directions as they say and that's sort of northeast southwest and above and below um, you, you actually start or I actually start with having compassion for myself and wanting um, happiness for myself and this is actually a bit of a sticking point I think for a lot of people both east and west but I actually think it's I, I don't think it's a problem for people in the east at all I've never seen it okay <laughs> yeah. yeah okay yeah I, I was actually just kind of tossing that in as a you know universalist no, they, they it is more of a problem attitude. in the west yeah yeah and and uh, something the teacher that I follow talks about a lot is because um, he's American by birth and upbringing he has an American accent but he's spent a ton of time in the east and he's you know he's yeah, he's a monk. And uh, he talks about, you know, many of the people he teaches when he says start by having compassion for yourself, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Sounds like a good thing. But when you sit down to actually do it, there's al almost have this feeling like there's something wrong with wishing well, happiness Westerners for have a very, very strange relationship to themselves. I mean, it's this weird kind of simultaneous, absolute, utter narcissism combined, which I think because, uh, to my understanding, uh, d depression is is uh, theorized often these days as excessive self-focus. That kind of extreme, absolute narcissism becomes indistinguishable at a certain point from depression. Because it's like I'm so great, I'm so great, and then the lived reality and the knowledge, you know, the, your knowledge of your flaws, kind of pokes through. So it's like, oh God, I'm the worst. I suck. I'm terrible. I don't deserve happiness and and then we're of course getting fed by the media 24 7 this idea that we don't deserve uh, i mean well again it's this kind of double-edged thing of like we don't deserve what we have we're bad we were exploiters we're colonizers blah blah blah, blah simultaneously with you know treat yourself etc and yeah <laughs> and so have a it, yas meal sorry oh i uh, have a burger king yas meal yeah exactly but then now burger king is oh doing this God. thing where it's like oh but you did you see this i think it was yesterday yeah. they launched a new ad campaign of like the sad meal so but it's, it's a perfect illustration of like you know yeah. do have it your way but also like you're feeling sad have a burger it, i mean it's just it so have, have a soy estrogen burger It'll exactly. help with that'll depression. that'll help that'll help <laughs> with your depression for sure surely so, more <laughs> consumption is the answer here so so the point is, it's it's it becomes um, this. It's this. It, we have no idea of no way of of um, of what it you know how to relate to ourselves, and I think that is at the root of a lot of this. And and again, it, it's you don't see this so much in the East. I don't really know why. It doesn't really matter. Um, I, I, I somebody told me I can't remember who that the the, the concept of altruism was developed by like a. Uh, you know who kind of Marxist in the 19th century. I don't know how true that is. I'd have to look into it. It would. I certainly wouldn't um, doubt it necessarily. But the the uh, the the point is, you know, we, if you this idea of altruism as um, just complete and total, like I have no interest in this whatsoever. Uh, I, I I someone I know um, was telling me that they interacted with the Dalai Lama because this guy there was like some young guy who like was was so deep into the study of altruism and compassion that he realized that there was some kind of psychological study that that said that 
essentially the more alt genuinely altruistic you are, the more happy you are, and that there's no such thing as purely self-uninterested compassion because you you will be more happy the more you will be you will benefit from being compassionate and um uh and altruistic someone in chat says august Comte. i'll have to look into i know the name i'll have to look into it anyway but the point is that this guy killed himself he was like 30 or something and he killed himself because he was so depressed because he was like well there's no such thing as purely being um purely being uh self disinterested because there's no such thing as true altruism because you you benefit and from the Dalai Lama's perspective, he was saying, this person who was telling me the story was like, he was just so confused. Like, I mean, he was felt, he found, he found this story, he found this, this suicide very sad, but he's like, why? Yeah, of course it's beneficial for you. Like, why wouldn't it be and why would it be a problem? Yeah. Uh, and, and when you, Storm was talking earlier about, you know, if you, let's say it's not, a loved one is dying of cancer and there's nothing you can do about it. And, you know, then you think, well, maybe I could, maybe, if I could help this person be more healthy in a certain way, they might suffer less in the long run. But on the other hand, it's not really going to save them. So maybe we should indulge their, you know, their vices or whatever. And it's, it's a hard thing to know what to do and you can start beating yourself up with it, but that's where wisdom comes in. And it's not just the wisdom to do the right thing for the other person, because sometimes we just don't know. Sometimes you just don't know. And that's where equanimity comes in. And part of wisdom is understanding that what really, what matters a lot is the intention. Now, also what matters is the result. It's not just, oh, let's have good intentions and not worry about whether the result is good or not. The Buddha repeatedly talks about, uh, the first teaching he gave to Rahula was, was the, the, the first steps of the path are to look at the results of your action. If the results are having good results, if the results are good, continue the action. If the results are bad, stop the action. And there's nothing in there about like, then lash yourself 40 times for screwing up. It's like, no, stop the behavior and then start doing better behavior. And there's Coach, no need to like... <laughs> don't ask questions. There's no just need to... do good behavior and get excited for next good behavior. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Create karma, get excited for good next karma. Um, so yeah, I guess that that's all I had to say about that. But it's... Um, yeah, yeah. I have uh, something I'd like to say to everybody listening and anyone that listens to this later... Um, and this has been said to me a couple of times in my life, and I've really appreciated uh, appreciated it. So I'm going to pass it on to you. Um, no matter who you are, you've been through a lot. It's difficult to be human. We live in an insane, crazy time. Um, our our bodies get sick, and they hurt, and they break, and they get old. And um, this is not easy. You know, this is difficult, and you've been through a lot. And it is okay for you to recognize that and your concerns are valid and your pain is valid and your suffering is valid and there is no need for you to suffer about the suffering on top of the suffering it is okay you should just take a moment and congratulate yourself for making it and that you're still here and that you're still trying and i think everybody should do this it's very healthy just have a moment yeah, pat yourself on agree. the back a little bit and 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 also i mean related to that is be it doesn't help and in fact hurts a lot i mean it hurts your situation to to push suffering away particularly when it's happening and that can be really difficult but one of the uh, you know sort of these things that people say well buddhism is scientifically but it, i mean it kind of it's a meme but it's also it's true and you know i've seen studies where basically 
if you are in pain, chronic pain in particular, which is a big issue, obviously we've talked already a, a fair amount here about the opioid epidemic. Um, it, it's not that it'll solve the problem of the pain, but paying attention, like directing your mind to your pain when you're feeling the pain, like physical pain, um, and simply just sort of allowing yourself to feel it helps. It helps a lot. It helps a lot. And there's other things you can do. I mean, embrace it with, you know, compassion and love and be like, oh, I know I, I, I'm, I'm aware. I mean, it, at a certain level, it requires a certain amount of faith. But you can say, like, there are beings, Jesus or the Buddha or whoever. There are beings out there. There are forces. There are powers there that are truly good that want me to be free from this. And you can receive that care into that pain. But even without doing that, which I highly recommend that everyone do if they're ever in that kind of a situation, um, I mean, really, anytime there's this issue, but but even without doing that, simply being aware, not like trying to focus on something else, not trying to do something else, just being like, oh, yeah, my back really hurts. And and just feeling that pain will um, not only reduce the, the, the extent to which you feel it as pain, but also... Um, there's, there's it seems to be psychologically something going on where in addition to the pain of feeling it, there's some kind of like suffering mechanism that's like, cause it, it sucks enough that you feel it feel bad that there's like an additional sucking layer of like mental anguish. And and that me, is, um, sorry, yeah. Go. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut no, you no, off. No, no, go ahead. What you're talking about is very relevant to me. Um, about a year ago, I had had some issues with my lower back, and this is back when I worked on my tools as a journeyman in my trade, doing very heavy industrial construction maintenance, um, heavy duty shit in steel mills, uh, power plants, car factories, stuff like that. Um, and and the schedules are very intense. You, sometimes you work seven days a week. Mostly you work six days a week. Very rarely do you work forty hours. And I had I had hit this very intensely because I was I had just finished my apprenticeship. And I had a, a incident where uh, I used what is really an incorrect movement at work. I was in a very awkward position in the plant, and I tore uh, a small tear in my erector spinae muscle, which is essentially there to your lower back, and they help hold you together. And I blew out my um, introvertebral disc at the L5-S1 level, and that's your last disc between your spine oh, fuck. And, and your sacrum. Yeah, and I blew it out so so much that I had, you know, maybe an eighth inch thick disc. I'm actually a little bit shorter now, although it's, it's gotten better as I've healed, but um, I was in uh, an extreme amount of pain for months. And then I was in a moderate level of pain for months after that. And to this day, it's still not all gone. I mean, I'm at like 95%, but, uh, and I want to say that physical pain is not what you think it is. It does suck. It is painful, but it's not, inherently bad by that i mean it is simply just another phenomena it's just another experience and one of the things i couldn't do for the longest time was actually sit in zazen and when i got where i could barely stand to do it i started doing it and this is when i discovered that you need there's an you the way that you're sort of naturally mentally attached to your ego you're sort of constantly inhabiting your ego with uh, willingly and just sort of going into that delusion at a force of habit, you do the same thing with your pain. You sort of go in and inhabit the pain and own the pain. And I was able to kind of pull outside of it and let the pain just go on within me. And this helped tremendously. 
This and I, uh, yeah, that that I think connects back to this. I mean, one of the central insights here, which again gets to the insanity of this idea of uh, altruism or compassion as being completely self disinterested, is there is no self. <laughs> there is no yeah. self, people. There's no such thing. So this idea of like, oh well, you know, this is going to benefit me, or I should be, I'm going to be super concerned about whether this benefits or me. There's no me. That that that's that's just a fiction that we've overlaid onto our experience by habit. So like what what is what is it so and that's the that's the thing about I think I mean think that to me I mean to my sort of understanding of at a at a mechanical level so to speak what's going on is the more genuinely we attend to the nature of experience the more we the more we the more accurate the, the more accurately experience is experienced because it's more accurate there is no self and so exactly as you say pain is just one the same way that the, oh there's you know there's a, a, a tree over here, and there's a sky over there, and there's a sound over there, and there's pain in here, and there's pleasure out there. You know, I mean, it's just sort of like these are all, these are elements of the experience, but they are not, they have the nature of experience, but I don't want to actually, I'm, I'm going a little bit too esoteric. I don't want to do that. I'm just saying like, the more that you attend to, um, the more that you attend to experience, the, the the more that like yourself you notice that yourself there is no there is no owner of that experience yeah and i'll also say because we brought this up before but to go on with my life i had to go on a regimen of opiate drugs and then um because i had to keep working because i can't at the time i had uh two family members who were very sick who depended on my income for their medical stuff and uh so i had basically had to take hard drugs to go back to work and to keep working and uh, I got I was fully addicted to um, to these and then I was fully addicted to the thing they give you that tries to get you off and then my insurance ran out and uh, they wouldn't pay for it anymore which great thanks uh, insurance fucking shitty corporate over overlords but then I had to go through um, the withdrawal process and I used the exact same uh, the exact same kind of meditation technique you know this if you can get in the right state of awareness in a meditative state of awareness um, in Zazen, you, it, the craving is there, but it's there the same way the incense holder is there. It's there the same way the sound of the birds are. It's, it's quiescent in itself. It's, it's, it's expressing its dharma as it is. There's no, I guess the, the sort of it being imbued with a inherent relationship to my ownership of the cravings that were there. And also this allowed, this taught me like to have more compassion for people that are addicts. Like, these people aren't just like purely degenerate. They're they're really really caught up in something that's very hard to get out of. It is not fun. So this whole process kind of taught me a lot about. I'm really sorry and, you had to go through that, and I um, thank well, you thank so you. much for sharing uh, your experience. That's um, very kind of you. Well, you know, I just want. I know there are other people out there who have been hurt and who have had to go through that. And that's, while we're talking about compassion, I just, I mean. I guess the most important thing I want to say is I don't blame you and and I'm here for you and if anybody is in this position totally DM me and you know you can get outside yourself and you don't have to own that pain and you don't have to own that craving and uh, you can use wisdom to fight against it and really honestly this is almost more effective than the drugs if I had been allowed had been able to just stay home and uh, didn't have to go and move around and stuff I probably would have just done intense meditation instead of taking the drugs There's a story uh, from the Thai forest tradition of one of the Ajans who went to uh, the rains retreat. So they 
they basically during the rainy season they basically just meditate the entire rainy season and he schlepped all the way out into the jungle by himself to his special little um like pagoda that he had set up there um and was totally by himself there's no roads in or out he had like a little store of food uh to last his time and nobody was going to come check on him until the end of the rainy season and almost immediately upon arriving at his location he had a heart attack so there was no doctors and no one even knew that he had a heart attack there was no medicine there was nothing that he nothing for him to do and he was too weak to schlep his way back out to quote unquote civilization to see a doctor so he had literally no choice but to just sit and meditate and that's what he did and he meditated his the entire rainy season and basically like built his heart back up um, and was fine and by the end of the rains retreat he was able to 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 go back out and um, some of the some of the stuff he wrote afterwards about what that situation was like and about the the internal um, experience of of basically, you know, doing a, another form of what you're talking about, Storm, which is just sitting there with it because there was literally nothing else that he could do. It kind of, and in some senses, it made it easy because there's like literally no other choice. Um, and so he was basically forced to just sit in meditation with his suffering like that. It's very, it's, it's quite a thing to consider to, to imagine what that must be like. And it makes it a little easier sometimes to sit with your own. Um, minor thing you know to sit for 20 minutes with a you know an ache in your shoulders or a, or whatever your current suffering might be i'd also read a story of a uh, this was a japanese zen practitioner who was also a construction worker and uh i think he, they were doing trenching <clears throat> and trenching is very dangerous <clears throat> even if your trench is only like five feet deep eight feet deep uh it's super serious if the trench comes in on you and you're buried um, and this is what happened to him. I think he was he was in a pretty deep one. And, you know, basically, uh, once you're covered up with dirt or gravel or whatever it is, you have very limited oxygen. And so his instinct was to go into meditation. He went into a very deep meditation and, like, exercised extreme control of his breathing. And he lived through it. They were, His coworkers were able to dig him out with shovels and their hands. And it took them a long time. And he should, you know, anybody that, anybody that wasn't a practitioner – probably would have died there um, because they didn't have that skill and that instinct. So he, you know, number one, he's rationing his breath. You know, he's taking very small, very focused, very deliberate breaths. He's not freaking out and causing himself to hyperventilate. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it's just it, when you're dealing with trauma and intense experiences and pain and stuff like that, there's no better skill than, um, than knowing the Dharma and having a meditation practice, in my opinion. And, and if you want to eliminate people suffering, perhaps one of the best things you can do is teach them this. It's a very pregnant pause. <laughs> yeah, no, Indeed. it's, um, it's really true that, uh, so, so much of the, I mean, that's where the wisdom comes from, right? That's, that's where, you know, it, I mean, people often—I um, don't know about often—but it, it is something I've encountered where you know, people want to know, like, well, what is this wisdom, or how does it work, etc. And uh, and not that I'm some kind of wise, whatever. I'm not, but um, I, I, I speak, I guess, from a position of someone who used to have that kind of like, what, what, what are you even talking about? And and at, at first, I sort of had an intellectual understanding of. Um, 
you know, I, I could sort of understand that it's not a question of like knowing, um, like a sentence, is, a, a, is it raining outside or not? Or like, this is the nature of this and that is the nature of that. And like, you know, language is not, it's not about language. And I understood that, but I didn't know what it was. And I still, I guess don't, but I, I understand enough to understand that, um, I guess it's closely related to, you could say to intuition. I mean, I don't want to have to define intuition. I don't know what I would come up with. But the point is, you know, when you sit in meditation, and, and in particular, if you sit in meditation repeatedly over a long period of time, something happens where your mind stops doing something that you weren't even really aware that it was doing, um, that it was sort of getting in your way. And then you start um, noticing and understanding things at a much deeper level. And when that starts to happen, that's when you start being able to really know what beings need. Um, and without that, I, 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 this is again, I mean, I, I like, you know, I don't want to spend too much time psychologizing the left, but I, I really think to me, it's all connected. It's all connected to the epistemology of the so-called enlightenment, um, where this, uh, this is the, because, and this is where like the, the idea that truth is linguistic comes from ultimately. Right, this, uh, this, um, like the the Vienna Circle stuff and the 20th century philosophy of language stuff, where you know people are trying to say, well, what is truth? Truth is a, something that can be expressed in an, ex you know, a linguistic expression. It's like that's nonsense. But it comes from the same place that this leftist idea of, you know, well, human human beings are just bodies with, or, or whatever, you know, bodies with 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 minds attached or something, or maybe they don't even have minds. It's just brains. And so if we like. If we tend to the sort of rational needs or the kind of like, what are the physiological needs of this body with this mind or brain attached to it, um, then that's it. Then we've solved the problem of suffering, everybody. Good job. We can go home. And of course, you know, the history of the past uh, 100, 200 years is one of just the repeated catastrophic failure of that whole way of looking at things. But uh, predictably, maybe they've just to keep doubling down on it and and i ultimately i think that comes down that lack of wisdom comes down to a a an inability or an unwillingness at least to um to just sit there are a lot of people whose um seemingly insurmountable problems <clears throat> can be solved by sitting quietly in a in a room and having a glass of water <laughs> and i've said that you know i i, I don't want to get on my high horse or anything um about this, but I will say that I do really, there are some people that I know both online and in real life that are, they're totally trapped in sort of the linguistic definitional view of the world. Like they're have an implicit and sometimes unexamined belief in the efficacy of language to uh, basically totally encapture <clears throat> what they're talking about. And it's sad to me and I don't like seeing it. And that's why I, I a lot of these people, because they're they're so focused on that, are kind of right on the edge of seeing the inherent problem with that, and it's it's not in a position I envy. I, I one of the better things that's ever happened to me was sort of escaping the word cage and being able to let things uh, be as they are outside that. You know, um, anything that's linguistic belongs to the conventional, and that's not because of nihilism. That's because of the insufficiency of language, and, and all these things are very close together. It's very dangerous territory to be in. And so it's easy to make a misstep and, and fall into these errors that continuously, like with the enlightenment thoughts you mentioned earlier, you just can, you just repeat this cycle of error and pain. And and I feel uh, I feel 
bad for these people, you know, because I used to be exactly like that. And then I got into Zen and went through that whole thing. And then I finally saw, oh, I'm not actually in this prison. I keep constructing this prison for myself at every moment of the day. And I can just stop. Uh, someone in the chat asked about who was the forest Ajahn who um, who had the heart attack during the rains retreat. His name was Ajahn Lee. Uh, he's one of the he's one of the teachers who's had the most uh, students um, in the modern time or in the 20th century, I should say. And I'm not logged into the chat, but um, uh, guys, I just posted in the chat maybe a link somebody can can stick into the uh, into the chat about yeah, Ajahn well, Lee. We could do that. Um, yeah. So was there any other aspect of compassion that we wanted to, to touch or um, did anybody have any other, other thoughts? Actually, yes. I mean, I would, since this is actually often like the subject of compassion often is kind of hijacked as a means by which leftists can infiltrate Buddhism. I think that really, if you were to say, well, what's the core of like the leftist altruist idea? It's, and what's the difference between that and actual Buddhism? It's that they are sort of attached to whatever or their like, objective the altruist, altruist idea. With zero sense of equanimity whatsoever. It's, and what's the difference? But so they focus on a particular class of people or a particular kind of person in a particular situation and then just focus on, well, how do we benefit them? And eventually, at a certain point, they lose any sense of trade-offs. They lose any sense of well, by doing this, does it have some kind of negative secondary consequence? Whereas from a Buddhist perspective, one should understand that when you take a particular course of action, it's going to have, it's going to, there's it, it, not really any way to have zero impact whatsoever um, from in, in, in generating negative consequences. I, so um, as an example, like you were saying, I think you were, I saw you having a conversation about how this idea that we should all start consuming bugs is actually a really horrible one because you're talking about killing. Yeah, this is one of my, of, this is one of my things, but sorry. Yeah, go, go on. It, this would be killing thousands of innocent beings. And so, you know, someone might look at that and say, well, if I wanted to reduce the number, amount of suffering of living beings, maybe I should go on to like this vegan diet or something like that. Well, even then your soy monoculture that you're using for your soylent and your and your tofu is coming from these environmentally destructive farms where they're dumping pesticides, poisoning rivers. And so you have to be aware that this is also going to be, there is a negative trade-off from that as well. And so when a leftist is focusing on, well, we have to help these refugees. And so let's either feed them in their country or bring them into the West. This is going to have some kind of negative consequences of its own. And they don't really seem to go beyond like this immediate focus of their attention. It's performative. Yes, um, that's that's one of the the biggest problems. Um, and I think it's a little bit uh, human nature, or maybe it's uh, maybe it's part of European nature. I don't know uh, what the HBD would say, but um, it it's something to watch out for in myself. I I know for sure. Um, is this, this idea of performative compassion. It's, it's done for other people. And this is not an original insight, of course, you know, um, on the dissident, right. You'll hear people talk all the time about virtue signaling, but that's really often what it comes down to is that it, it you're doing it for an audience, um, and you need to be seen, um, performing your good your good deeds um, because of the social status that'll give you and sometimes people internalize it so much that 
they will actually um, do good and and not or, or do what they perceive as good um, uh, and then not advertise it, which I suppose is a an improvement. But there's still a sort of an aspect of it, which is they're they're doing it for themselves. They're watching themselves be so holy and so good, and they're they're basically just getting high off the smell of their own farts, really, of, about how good they are. And and they lose track of, like you say, Kagu, they lose track of, like, the, the trade-offs involved and, and w- whether or not they're... The, the other wing of the wings to awakening, one is compassion, but the other is wisdom. And, you know, with only one wing, you're, you can't fly. You're going to fall down. Um, so, yeah. No, it's, it, it's, it's like, for instance, you can make a very rational case that letting in enormous numbers of Guatemalans is going to have the trade-off of people in the Midwest are going to be left unemployed, addicted to opiates, and just made worse off by doing that. And, and of course, anyone on the right can see that and understand yeah, well, that there is a trade-off. Some people, that's what here. they... I mean, that's... I mean, sorry, maybe this is... Take it, but, like, you have to consider the possibility, at least, that some people want that, right? Oh, I think that the... <laughs> yeah. I think the elites designing the program absolutely do, but I think the rank and file of these typically just lack the... They just lack the insight into, well, my perce- my my preferred... <laughs> object of my altruism these refugees is just becomes the absolute focus of everything i'm thinking about and so the notion that this has trade-offs just doesn't even pop into their yeah, mind earlier in the it, chat sorry go on go on well i was uh, just to piggyback on what kagu said and this you know not to put too fine a point on it but i have spent a lot of time in central america and um i've been to el salvador more than a dozen times and and, you know, one quarter of all Salvadorans live in the United States, and it is absolutely destroys their economy. There is no I mean, they didn't have a great economy to begin with. Don't get me wrong. But the number one thing that they produce there is not coffee. It's not any industrial or agricultural product. It's remissions that their entire com- economy runs on remissions uh, from the United States. So people go to the U.S., they make money, they send it back. And that is the economy of El Salvador. And just I mean, that is uh, <laughs> absolutely devastating for a country there's no there's there's no it's like reverse incentive mercantilism structure. and it's just i mean as bad as mercantilism it, it's just yeah it is it is i mean frankly i i do care about those people and I, I want them to do well and so i do care now primarily i care about my own people and so i think it's a bit of a distraction sometimes to say oh these poor salvadorans but I, it's it's not doing anyone any good i mean it's just a horrible situation but they have fetishized uh, the, the left has fetishized the their concept of what they think or what they say constitutes being compassionate, and so they will commit any. I mean, this this is the story of of like you know totalitarian communism, right? C- commit any atrocity because they're they, it's it's been fetishized into like well this is for the the greater good. So they they multiply suffering all over the place uh, in, in the name of you know compassion or good. It's like it's it's like the inversion of good, and and you know like you said earlier dk like that it, it is i mean it's evil it's it's so bad yeah well i think it, it i think you also you, you said it exactly right when you said there essentially it's it's uh smelling their own farts it's what it's really coming out of is wanting this desire to pat yourself on the back right it's a desire to say i am a good person how do i know i am a good person because globo homo tells me good people do x and i do x Right. And uh, I mean, it's uh, it's just steeped in thought terminating cliches. I, I'd say it's 
uh, thought terminating cliches all the way down. But the, um, there's a certain, the word that came to mind is sophistication. I don't like, I have to think of a better word, but in the meantime, we'll go with, there's a certain sophistication, or at least a certain complexity, let's say, to it. Because that's the thing is it's, it, it comes, it all comes back to, you know, well, what you don't, you, you believe in equality, right? Do you think your life is worth more than the life of this El Salvador? And it's like, no, not in ultimate terms. And also in relative terms, I mean, it's just, but that's not what it's about. You know, that's just not, that's not at any level what this is about. And so it just becomes this twisted way of looking at things. And, and I, again, a lot of this, I don't, I don't, I think if there hadn't been a John Stuart Mill that someone else would have had to in, would have invented utilitarianism because it's sort of baked into the Enlightenment rationalist cake and, and he just sort of expressed the underlying mode of thinking that was already implicit. But yeah, I mean, fundamentally, it's a utilitarian way of looking at things. And I mean, at, at a certain level, you could say, well, Buddhism is also utilitarian. It's just that the utility function maximizes for enlightenment. Um, and I think that's true, but then, you know, like... Okay, but that's not really subject to the kind of uh, quantitative analysis or pseudo quantitative analysis that, you know, like if I feed X number of Salvadorans that that produces Y amount of human happiness. I mean, this gets into the, like the have you had much contact any of y'all with the uh, effective altruist crowd or, or seen any of this? I, I'm uh, never. Are these are they like overcoming bias people? Okay, or I don't, I, know, I don't know what know. overcoming bias people are. What is that? No. Just keep it that way, man. You don't want to know. <laughs> oh, well, so I, I learned about this from Scott Alexander, who I believe is a effective altruist, or at least sort of moves in those circles. Um, and if you, if, if you, I mean, Slate Star Codex, that's Scott Alexander, which I believe is a pseudonym, um, his blog. I am familiar with Alexander, so. Yeah, yeah okay. So he, he like, is a, and, and, and the TLDR on effective altruism is it's sort of, like, like, lobotomized, materialist bodhisattva ideal like it's a really strange world um because they don't like i mean they, they're, they're kind of on to something like they, they get they intuitively grasp the the bodhisattva ideal of like we want to help beings which is good that doesn't I mean certainly nothing wrong with that but they're they're sort of their framework is strictly materialist physicalist or at least implicitly and i think in general explicitly and maybe they're sort of like halfway willing to entertain the idea of some kind of you know non purely physical reality, but they don't really take it all that seriously, and 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 so they run around, and and they get in these really weird tangents and, and corners. But this is where I mean I saw uh, not that long ago connected directly to this issue about eating bugs, where um, where Scott Alexander had this sort of analysis of like because there's somebody came out with like the number of neuronal connections. It was it had to do with um, basically our kind of implicit feeling as humans of compassion for animals based on how uh intelligent so to speak we perceive them to be and basically that like our um measure our sort of in, in implicit measure of the value of an animal's or a non-human being life is kind of roughly correlates like we people put things on a scale and that scale roughly correlates to the number of neuronal connections in that animal so like dogs and elephants are like in one category and like shrimp or in another category, and and you can sort of map these things out, which is interesting. I mean, it's not, you know, it's it's. Um, so what did they do? They calculate the number of neuronal. Yeah, and that's like exactly. And so they're basically like, and they're basically protein. saying like one cow equal has like x number of neurons, and like x divided by I don't know ten thousand. So like there's one ten thousandth as many connections in a bug. So like 
eating one cow is the same, so to speak, in this in this kind of weirdly utilitarian analysis as eating ten thousand bugs. Um, Without disagreeing with that, like, completely, because, I mean, it's not like it's exact, like, just totally wrong or I don't understand at all where they're coming from. It's like you're, you're, you're losing the plot here that the bug is a sentient. I mean, that, fundamentally what it comes down to is, like, the bug is a sentient being. It is a, it, 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 you know, it has a continuum of its existence, and it is not more or less, like, the mind of a bug and the mind of the Buddha have the same nature, right? So, like... It's not that like the bug. I mean, you know, the Buddha you was was a bug at one point. He was a lot of things. That's what we have the Jataka. I mean, the Jataka is full of stories about when the Buddha was a horse, when the Buddha was an elephant. So like, it's it, there's there's something fundamentally missing, which I I would ultimately place on there's there's the lack of the understanding of like what a mind is, um, that that gets them in these weird logical cul-de-sacs, um, yeah. And I think it's kind of implicitly grows out of, I guess, Scott Alexander is probably someone who's like, assumes that the mind is sort of an emergent property of the physical brain, more or less. And Very so much so, and explicitly, yeah, he, I mean, he, he like, kind of doesn't want to deal with the hard problem, because he's a, he's a psychiatrist, too, so he has, like, a kind of weird, he's like, well, it's just hormones and chemicals. I'm like, I, I mean, no, actually, no, but whatever, I understand, anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah, so I mean that—that's probably going to explain most of his his approach to this. It's just like if you assume that the brain and the mind are exactly the same, or the mind emerges entirely from the physical brain, then that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean that's what I was I mean, saying. Sorry, go on. The the thing with uh, this to me is just—it's it, a very—it's uh, a elaborately decorated hard utilitarianism. Uh, in my opinion, and to to anyone that has a utilitarian outlook, I say what you're essentially arguing is that there is a situation um, where the amount of orgasms justifies the rape. Yeah. And uh, that's, <laughs> yeah. totally, that's, yep. that's totally, totally fucking insane. So, you know, you're implicitly justifying yeah. that. So yeah. you need to find something else. This is not a good way to think. Your system is fucked. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Are you know, even... Sorry, no, I want Storm to continue. Oh. oh, yeah. And so, I mean, it's it's a, such a... It's kind of mind-boggling the amount of assumptions you have to make uh, that aren't, in my opinion, are not even falsifiable uh, because of the human epistemological position to say that, oh, yeah, the mind is just an emergent phenomenon that comes from the brain. All the evidence for that could also be evidence for, let's say, uh, the brain being like a radio that picks up on a fundamental omnipresent consciousness, right? So a bug is like a little, a little radio that would be added into like, uh, some, you know, like a like a Walkman, right? And like a human mind is like a big complex uh, stereo system with a TV and all this other stuff that picks up and shows you more, right? So I mean. The, the yeah. evidence they're looking at is also evidence for a, a, a plenty of other theories. Yeah, it's not, it's non-falsifiable. That's a really right. true thing. It, it is it is essentially a magical well, belief. The, and the essence of the, Alan Watts yeah. puts it. Yeah, Alan on. Watts puts it really well. He talks about um, you know this this idea of emergent um, uh, consciousness or whatever. Basically, we're saying that 
consciousness is just really, 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 really complicated rocks, right? It's just atoms. It's just really, <laughs> yeah. really, really complicated rocks, right? And he says, but there's as much evidence for that as there is evidence to say then that, that a rock is just a really, really, really dumb consciousness. Like if that's yeah. if that's all that you're saying, the consciousness. Well, there's is, also then, the like then epistemological. How is, how is the whole world not consciousness? There's, right? there's also know? the so, exactly, and there's and there's also the epistemological, the related epistemological problem where how like what is when you're looking at the rock are you looking at the atoms of the rock or are you looking what exactly is it that you're looking at and what i would say is that what you're looking at is the effect that the interaction between your sense faculties and the rock produce which is a mental representation or cognition or sensory image of the rock like the the, the interaction causally produces some kind of mental effect and what you're seeing actually seeing is that mental effect like the visual cognition is an effect and and you never see the rock what you see is meant is essentially at some level your own mind in the form of a what what appears as a rock and so like there's you you're saying yeah you're saying the the rock you it's the rock you mind. It's it's, it's all those things. Sure. <laughs> you and yeah. The rock it's and like the, the name of this episode, the rock you mind. <laughs> um, but that's the point is like you never, I mean, so when you have like, okay, so you, you, you get like a complicated EKG or whatever machine to like, uh, you know, look at stuff with. Okay. But when you look at the readout on the thing, you're not actually seeing, first of all, you're not actually even seeing the thing. You're seeing what's been measured with an instrument. But then even when you're looking at the results of the measurement, the results of that measurement are still like, you know, it's the photons that are striking your retina that's producing a a some kind of mental representation. And it's your consciousness interacting with that mental representation. That's all you ever see. You you never see the the thing itself at a certain level. I mean, the thing itself may or may, you know, it's it's there. Let's say provisionally that it's there. But it doesn't, it doesn't actually matter because whether it was there or not, whatever it is that's causing your cognition doesn't actually matter because what you see is your cognition. Anyway, I, I, don't, I don't want to disappear. That's, that's a, a little bit advanced and, and not super on topic. We had two questions in the chat, and I'm curious what um, you all had to say. But real, real, real quick, maybe super cool kid asked, how does one convert to Buddhism? And what I would say is you, you, you find a teacher. You don't necessarily need – I mean, you can also find a, like a statue of the Buddha or something. But the, the, the best is to have a human teacher of one sort or another. And you take – it's called going for refuge. You take refuge. You say, I am lost. I have a, this problem that I suffer that I don't really know how to fix. And so I go and I, um, I say, I'm, rather than seeking for refuge in drugs or alcohol or, or cummies or video games or Globo Homo or whatever – you know, I like that. None of that stuff is actually going to help me in the long run. What's actually going to help me is the Dharma. And so I go and I take refuge in the Buddha. I ask the, you know, the Buddha, please be my refuge. Uh, I ask the Dharma, please be my refuge. I ask the Sangha, the community, please be my refuge from this bad situation I'm in. Uh, and that essentially is the is the conversion. Um, and then the other question from our friend Kohlrabi asks, what is the Buddhist teaching on having children? Many basic white girls openly say they won't bring a child into this world because it will increase suffering. And that's just nonsense. Um, you should have, I mean, there's no, I wouldn't say there's like a standard Buddhist teaching on having children other than like, it's not, it's not bad. It's not like, it, it's kind of, I mean, you know, it's not something that monks should do, but society, like in order for society to support monastics and practitioners it needs to exist and there need to be householders who are earning money so you there need you know, if you're not if you're not if you're going to be a lay person you really should be having children 
And it's not going to increase the amount of suffering in the world. That's just a garbage, garbage, garbage talking point. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, the, the, the reason that monks don't have children is not because there's anything bad or evil about having children. It's just because it's the same as very similar as in the Christian tradition. It's because they're supposed to be focusing on their, uh, their spiritual practice and their duties as a monastic and, uh, having a family is just a distraction from that. So, but there's nothing bad about it in Buddhism. You can also be a lay person who's extremely devoted to your practice. You know, I mean, that's essentially what I've done. I think all of us here are pretty much. Yeah, sorry, that. that's I, the I, idea. I, I overstated. Yeah, you, you don't. If you you don't need to have children, but it's it's especially if you're a lay person, it's typically. I mean, maybe depending on your situation, maybe not. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, from a Buddhist perspective, we often like to speak about the precious human birth because it's seen as something that's relatively rare. And particularly if you are actually a Buddhist, if, if you do have children, they're going to be exposed to the Dharma's teachings and to Buddhism, and that's going to be a very auspicious birth for them. It's going to be very beneficial for them. And so you can even argue in, in a certain sense that it's actually a very good thing to have that's them. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. Like, on the contrary, it's not just that it's like it's going to increase suffering. What you're doing, if, you, if, you, if you're in a good situation and pretty much any white girl living in the United States is in a very good kind of if you, from cosmological perspective you're in a very good situation uh like yeah the more children you if you can if you can bring a child into the world in into that kind of a good situation in a stable family particularly if you're religious um and you can provide them with a solid moral framework to become bodhisattvas and to engage in bodhisattva activity there's literally nothing better that you can do with your life just about this addresses actually the 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 claim uh very common among Westerners that there's something nihilistic about Buddhism, and that comes from a massive misunderstanding. But it, you know, it's sort, of, it's also sort of the fault of Buddhism because the central teaching of all Buddhism is the Four Noble Truths, and the first Noble Truth is can be translated various ways, but is often translated the nature of the. Ex Suffering is the nature of existence, right? And so people are like, well, your number one teaching is that you know, suffering is the nature of existence, and there's a misunderstanding about what nirvana means, which I would like to talk about in a future episode. Um, but the, nirvana can be translated as like extinguishing or just non-existence, right? So people are saying, well, these are your these are your major teachings that that existence is suffering, and therefore you want to like not exist anymore. That sounds pretty nihilistic. But it's a total misunderstanding. It's a total mistranslation. We can't. I don't think we have time to get super let's, deep into that right now. But let's do it another time. Saying, yeah, let's do what, it. Uh, let's yeah, do it. But, let's do that next know, time. To 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 put a, a feather in it for for this discussion um, about about children about the question of Kohlrabi asked. This demonstrates, you know, that that what Kagyu was saying about the the preciousness of human life and um, how how lucky somebody is in buddhism they, they say again you know it's extremely rare to be born as a human with the capacity to achieve enlightenment and even more rare is to be taught the dharma so this is like a precious precious jewel to encounter these things um uh and and it's it's to be celebrated and and it's something to be grateful for and it's something to to encourage it's, it's a very life-affirming kind of kind of teaching i think that is a great place to end it for now unless you all have any other um thoughts on that but i think that's very positive and, and points towards a great discussion for next week i'm down with that sounds great that sounds good to me okay well uh so it says that seems to be the end for now thank you all so much for listening we really appreciate your questions we really appreciate your feedback um i don't 
typically make a thing, but uh, hey, mash that subscribe button. I mean, I guess I see I have 12 subscribers already on my YouTube channel, so I had I had just sort of did this to do it. But uh, yeah, why not? Um, and then I guess you'll probably get updates, and I'll try to schedule things more in advance in the future. But for now, this has been Right Wing Dharma Squads, and we hope you all enjoy. Talk to you all later. Bye.